folks, it's Matt here from the Ask the Arb podcast. Before we get stuck into today's podcast, I'd just like to ask you a favour. If you've ever got any value from this podcast, you could do us a massive favour uh, by going to wherever you get your podcast from and subscribing to the show and leaving us a review. You can also follow us on Instagram at go-rover, and that would be fantastic. So let's jump right into today's. So folks, today I am delighted to have Chris Penman from Stark Consulting Engineers on the uh, on the podcast. Chris is a structural engineer and specialist in the design of things such as curtain walling, um, buildings, glass structures, and Chris has helped hundreds of people just like you make sure that their home extensions and alterations are, are well specified, but most importantly, safe, as we will get onto in a minute. Um, he's also the best-selling author of Safer's Houses. Um, um, and he's owner of the massively successful Ask the Engineer Facebook page and also, interestingly, creator of the food bank cryptocurrency. Now, if you don't know about crypto and I don't know anything about it, uh, in the initial eight weeks in circulation, food bank crypto increased their investors' money 28 times whilst managing to raise over £50,000 for food banks. So Chris is doing a, a wonderful job there um, and uh, that is fantastic. So after that, welcome, Chris. Thanks a lot for agreeing to uh, to come on to this. Oh my God, that's quite a quite a build up. Uh, um. <laughs> well, we try, <laughs> we try, we try. So I, I can tell from the little bit of research I've done, and I have actually read your book. I must admit, I I bought it about I don't know, was it a year ago that came out? Now I think so. Yeah, yeah, it was a, a, eighteen months ago. Something yeah, like it was something something like that. Bought it flicked through, looked at the chapter headings, and I thought, that's fantastic. Uh, that's going to be really, really useful um, for, for the business and all sorts of things. And uh, But yesterday was the first time I've actually read it cover to cover. And what I like about it, and I'd encourage all the listeners, I'll put a link in the uh, in the description, I'd encourage all the listeners to to go and grab a copy of that if they're, if they're embarking on this journey, because um, it's written just the way you speak. No nonsense, no bullshit, straight in there absolutely spot on so yeah. i can tell you, you love your job chris is that right it, yeah I, I, I like what i do i like engineering i i, I like problem solving um the, the book itself is mostly questions that people have asked on mm. facebook page uh, because we get quite a lot of the same types of questions um people who've got a crack in their house and they want to know why there's a crack there they've got some signs of movement or they built a house extension and um Maybe they've built the house extension illegally. Mm. They're getting a building warrant for it and now they're selling their house. But to be honest, I, I wrote the book so long ago now that <laughs> I, I'm, I'm struggling to remember all the topics that we've got in there. Um, but basically, they, they tend to be common questions that people have. Yeah. And a little bit of background about, obviously, why you should hire professionals to do your work instead of just either doing it yourself or getting a student to do things. Mm. Because quite apart from the fact that you want somebody with insurance to do these things. Um, you you just you don't get a good service. I don't, I don't think. No, and um, it, it's interesting, isn't it, that the RC Engineer Facebook page is just as big as it is because that's almost like validation of people casting around looking for free advice rather than being prepared to yeah. pay a professional. Well, is that something you come across fairly regularly? 
Well, on on the Facebook page, yeah. yeah. Um, we've we've got I think eight and a half thousand followers on Facebook. Mm. Um, they're all just organic followers. None of them are bought or anything like that. No, um, they're from all over the world. We've done work in America, in Africa, like literally anywhere. Um, because at the end of the day, engineers just maths. Yeah. It's still just gravity, it's still just steel. We, we have to find what grades and materials you can get in each country. Uh, but but generally speaking, people just want some free advice. A lot of the time just on, can I do this? Mm. You know? Um, nothing, nothing super complicated. It tends to just be a, I'm thinking about doing this, is that even practical? Uh, but most engineers will charge them for even considering the question. If right. you phone up a consultant... That consultant's not going to give you their time for free. Yeah. Um, and in fairness, on the Facebook page, we do charge for some things. If somebody wants me to do a design for something, then, yeah, I'll charge them for that. Yeah, but quite right want, too. If they just want to go away and talk <coughs> about things and get a little bit of free advice, then, yeah, that's the whole point of it. It's mostly just to stop people doing stupid things. Yeah. Uh, I know that might seem a bit odd, but having went into an awful lot of people's houses and seen mm. DIY, D- DIY um, alterations and things like that, people do some mind-blowingly stupid <laughs> things to that house. And, and the Facebook page is there to try and stop people doing some yeah. very stupid things to their house. It's one of those things, isn't it? I mean, reading through your book, there's a lot of crossovers with the pain points that that, that we experience with our customers, uh, that our customers experience. And I guess, why do you think, you know, why do you think people underestimate design team costs? Because we, the feeling I get is that architects in particular are held in high esteem, and this isn't a dig at architects, it's just the way it is. Architects, lawyers, doctors, they're all held in very high esteem. And I end up in situations all the time where I'm having a conversation with a client, trying to find a little bit more about their project, and they're throwing back at me all the time, well, the architect said this. Or the architect said that, or that's yeah. not what the architect said. And I guess is that the same for for engineers? Yeah, that's that's the same for us. I think a lot of that is that um, architects and doctors and people like that they deal with the public. They're, they're mm. good at dealing with public. Um, engineers are not so good. We're, we're good at maths, right? By and large, the typical structural engineer will be somebody who sits at a desk doing maths, doing drawings, or whatever. But it won't really be facing the public or interacting with the public at all, you know. Mm. The most you'll get is maybe maybe going to meetings and talking to an architect or something like that, but but the engineer will not have an awful lot of experience. I, I, I want to say experience, but it's not really experience. Um, the architect is better placed to talk to people, if you like. Yeah. Engineers, by and large, like doing maths. Which I guess is, you know, that I mean, and that's a great thing. It's great that the architect is that is that customer interfacing unit. They just need to make sure they give them the give them the right advice up front. And um, yeah, I mean, quite often, the number of times we have people come to us, and it's just a complete shock to them that they've got to do a tree survey or they've got to do an ecological survey. And you think, well, all that information is out there. You know, and I guess it's the same in terms of uh, building warrants and things like that. You know, the information's out there; it's publicly yeah. available, isn't it? So it, it is, but the the thing <coughs> is that people don't generally hire actual qualified architects. Right? Actual qualified architects are working in big architectural firms, designing mm. schools and hospitals and offices and things like that. The people who are involved in doing domestic house extensions are more likely to be 
an architectural student or a, a, an architectural technician, mm. not an actual chartered architect. So these people will do AutoCAD drawings, they'll have lots of standard details and they'll, they'll do a good job of doing yeah. the interior of layout and things like that, but they probably don't know basically about tree surveys mm. and, and things like that because somebody else has to deal with that stuff, right? They do the plans, they give it to the client, they put it up to building control, and then when the question gets asked, they're like, oh, that's not me. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. and they've already been paid by that point, so they don't need to deal with the the impact of the lack of knowledge and the lack of um, kind of advice that they've given to the client. The client now has a problem, and they need to find a specialist to fix that problem. And it's just you, you'll find that as well. You you'll find that people will phone you up and they'll be looking for a solution to a problem that they didn't even know that they had. Yes, you know, and they'll not <coughs> want to spend the money on it because they've already allocated all of the budget for the new kitchen and yeah and things like that so they, they don't have a fee to go away and get a tree survey done because that money is allocated to chrome light switches yeah. or you know a, a tap that boils the water or something like that yeah they um, think they think you know once once the design is finalized that's it there's yeah. no there's 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 no other no other boxes uh, boxes to tick there and i guess you know that's why there's a suite of architects that we work with regularly who are a delight to work with and we do um cpd with them on ecological and and, and tree matters and things and yeah they go into it you know well informed and they'll give the client all the right information up front which uh, which makes our lives an awful lot easier so i'm going to take you back in time just a little bit just for a while, just briefly. And uh, it, it's always interesting to me how people have got to where they are today. So, I mean, was there a, what was the moment that you decided to be an engineer? Who, decide, who, who, in, who inspired you to be an engineer or was it just one of those things that you fell into by accident? Uh, my dad was a, a maths teacher and techie teacher. Right. right. So my dad ended up being the the head of the technical department in the school that I went to. Yeah. Um, so he would also teach maths as well. Uh, so for all intents and purposes, even from when I was small, we, we would have people coming over to our house to get taught maths or techie drawing or, or something like that. Mm. And unsurprisingly, I was very good at techie drawing and I was also very good at maths. Um, I'm terrible at English, and although I've written a book. But um, <laughs> the, those two things just came easy to me because yeah. I had spent like even my primary school years, watching my dad teach people maths and, you know, you know what it's like. Your, your dad's doing drawing, so you go away and start doing yes. drawing and things like that. It, it's just easy. Yeah. You know, that that was basically it. Um, and I enjoyed trying to figure out how things worked, you know, like taking mechanical things to bits mm. and stuff like that. I actually went to university to study mechanical en engineering. Right. And I lasted uh, one semester <laughs> there. And it was so dull. I, I, I honestly thought it was going to be about designing cars and engines yeah. and stuff, and it just was not. No. Um, so I went along to the civil engineering department, and they, they had wave machines and uh, earthquake machine and stuff like that. So I was like, this is definitely a place for me. Um, and then I, I found that I didn't particularly like civil engineering either. Mm. Um, but So I moved on to the structures course, and that just made more sense to me. Uh, it was just... A lot easier. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I could, I could visualize the problems an awful lot better, so I quite enjoyed it. And once you were qualified, where did you go from there? Um, I went to work for Cundall Johnston and Partners in, in Edinburgh. Mm. Um, they were just a typical structural engineering company, but they also had mechanical electrical engineers as well. So 
I got my first taste of services engineers asking for big massive holes to put yeah. a few cables through and stuff like that. Um, and I know that's a bit of a cliche and it's not <laughs> really what happens, but it was the first interaction with another discipline yeah. like, was inside that office. Um, from there, I ended up moving to Glasgow to work for uh, a, a variety of different companies. Because when you leave uni, the only way that you can get your salary up is to basically move every couple of years. Mm. You know, you move, you get a pay rise, and then you stay there a couple of years, you move, you get a pay rise. Um, and what I found was doing that kind of work, you get an, an awful lot of experience in designing portal frame sheds and hospitals and big, big, big projects. But these projects last for 18 months, two years, and it gets very, very samey. Yeah. You know, you're working on something, you're like, right, for the next two years of my life, I'm going to be designing this. And you're like, oh, God. Yeah, that's a long no, time. Uh, regardless of how much you like your job, it's it just it's mm. like working in a supermarket or something like that. You just, you're doing the same thing again and again. And I just found that my enthusiasm for that was waning a little bit. Um, and I got a job at the Scottish Parliament designing ballistics class. Oh, yeah. And I found that quite interesting. Um, mostly because well, it's glass, it's see-through, you know. Yeah. Um, a lot of engineers don't design glass because I think fundamentally because it's see-through. You know, it's like, oh, it's magic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because you, but it's, it's essentially the same sort of maths as designing any other material. But I, I like that. And the, the jobs that I do at the moment, we, we can kind of pick and choose what we do and we get to make some very sort of pretty, pretty things mm. because you can do some really nice, interesting things with glass as a material. Um, so that's that's the kind of fun stuff that I, that I do. But we also obviously do a lot of house extensions yeah. and stuff like that because that just keeps bumping. Well, there's, there's re reading through the book, and I must admit I did know this before I read the book, but I think we're a similar kind of age. And I remember, um, I'm not going to say it was on the front cover of FHM back in the day, oh, yes. but there was one one particular building that you had a hand in. Uh, do you want to tell the listeners about that yeah. one? Or, or are you wishing I'd left that one out? <laughs> I, I actually put that in my CV at some point. Did um, you? We, we, we designed a shopping centre and cin cinema called Smaraland in Iceland, mm. which looked like a cock and balls. <laughs> um, if you Google it, it was actually an FHM, and I don't know where the, I, I kept the clipping yeah. on it, and I don't know where it went. I've tried to find it fairly recently, to be honest, to show somebody. Yeah. Um, but if you Google it, you can see, I don't know what the designer was thinking, <laughs> honest to God. But when it came in, it came in in three stages. Right. It genuinely came in as three different phases. Yeah. Right? So the, the, the head of the penis was phase one. That yeah. was the cinema. And then the mall section was the shaft. <laughs> and then essentially phase three was uh, the balls. But, <laughs> but it came on three separate drawn sheets, basically. Right. It's all, you just almost, didn't link it up. Almost like the architect was trying to hide what you were actually making. Yeah. You know? Uh, but yeah, that, that well, was... you know, architects—they <laughs> do like to make a statement, don't they? I, I, I guess, which which probably brings me on to my uh, brings me on to my next point about how um, some of these projects can be can be designed for the architect themselves rather than uh, rather than from the client. But I mean, from our perspective, 
Uh, we're predominantly an arboricultural consultancy. Um, we do about, I don't know, 60% arboriculture, 40% ecology, something like that. Um, but one of the main areas of conflict between trees and, and any building that's coming along is, is the foundation design. And where we kind of trip over your profession is that we will put a very sweeping statement on the bottom of an impact assessment, which says something along the lines of uh, the project partially impacts the root protection area of tree T1, a beautiful mature oak tree. Uh, therefore, no excavation will be allowed and the client will have to use uh, piled foundations. And yeah. we and we leave it at that. And I guess probably reading your book, I'd realised how much of a hand grenade we'd lobbed in there because although we always caveat it and say, you know, we're suggesting that as a as a methodology of overcoming damage to the tree. However, um, you need to be aware we're not structural engineers and you will need the advice of a structural engineer. Now, what we've done in that single paragraph, cross-referencing with your book, is we've probably about quadrupled their cost of their foundation design. Would that yeah, be... That, that would be around about right, yeah. yeah. Because obviously, if you're, if you're doing a, a house, a house, say, and one elevation of it needs to be piled... Mm kind of need to do all of it right right because the the pile foundation is going to go all the way down the rock it is not going to move at all mm. anything that you do that isn't on a pile is going to at least compact the ground below it right it's going to settle a little bit mm. so if you're piling one elevation of it you're piling the whole house right um and depending on where rockhead is that, that could be quite a significant amount of additional money. And what about, so um, there's a particular job that we're involved in in the mo at, at the moment down south, it's in Reading or some, it's somewhere down south. And um, this this client, basically, he um, he's, he bought this house years ago and it's got piled foundations. And he hadn't realised that the reason it's got piled foundation is that it's on a shrinkable soil, it's on London clay. Yeah. And just off site is, um, is a large mature oak tree. And I'm sure you'll be aware, as much as I am, that quite often when a conservatory is thrown on the back of a house, it's got a very, very thin skim of concrete thrown onto the ground with the conservatory built over the top. So the thing that happened first was the conservatory peeled off the house. Uh, and I think they had it rebuilt by the insurance then it peeled off the house again. It's all right, we're having our photo taken, pose, pose. Um, so, uh, yeah, the conservatory peeled off the house. They had it rebuilt, it peeled off the house again, and he thought, I'm not going to have a conservatory <laughs> here anymore. Uh, then the garage started to crack and fall apart because, again, quite often the um, the house foundation design will be appropriate for the soil type, but the garage is quite often just thrown down, isn't it, on a, yeah. on, a, on whatever happens to be available. And this was all to do with this huge oak tree that was off-site, protected by a tree preservation order, and, um, uh, and, uh, and the soil type. So he's got planning consent now to, um, to build a new extension because he can't basically can't sell the house. Yeah. Uh, he can't move. He's got to stay in this house now. Um, so uh, he's had a structural engineer involved who's who's specified the pub foundation and all that kind of good stuff. So I'm guessing that connection, what if you you already had a house there with traditional foundations and you're having a um, an extension built that's got to have piled foundations, how do those two get tied together in any kind of sensible way then? Um, you Obviously, <coughs> your extension in your house... There will be a movement joint between the yeah. two of them, right? There, there would be a movement joint anyway, um, but you would just need to detail the movement joint so that you allowed for the fact that the house is going to bob up and down because it's mm. 
it's going to seasonally move a little bit. Um, and the, the pile foundation part is just not going to move at all. So you, you just need to allow for that in the detailing between the two structures. Yeah. The, the problem arises where you have, I mean, obviously the house and the situation you're talking about isn't piled. Right? No. Right. So it's now the extension that's piled and it's piled purely because of the tree. Tree, correct. Right? Yeah. So the house is already settled as much as it's going to do mm. through gravity. So any movement you get in the house is only because of the, the dewatering of the, the soil because of mm. the tree seasonally. So that's going to be very minimal, realistically. Yeah. You know, not going to be that much. But you're going to have to take that up in the movement joint between the, the extension and the house and, and just, it's just a bit of detail. It's not difficult. But normally where you have an extension next to a house, you would tie the two things together mm. so you don't get any movement at the junction between the two. Right. Which is why if it was reversed and the, the house was piled, and the, the extension was just on a normal strip foundation, what you would find is that the extension would literally rip away from the house. Yeah, because, I've seen that. Because mm. the base wouldn't move when it was attached to the house because yeah. of the dowels connecting it. But the bit further away from the house would sink by you know a good few inches maybe. Yeah. And it would just rip the, the wall off. you get a triangular crack forming in it. So what... what at what stage? Um, so let let let's assume th this is a very very common uh, scenario. So um, the client has had their beautiful extension drawn up. Let's assume it's clay soil. So not only has it got to be have very deep foundations anyway, uh, but it's piled because of the tree. Uh, so the client has uh, had this extension drawn. They may not have been aware of the fact that actually there was an issue between the trees and the and the clay soil. They've yeah. come to us because they've submitted their planning application. All of a sudden, they need a tree survey to get their planning application validated. Yeah. So we go there, we do our piece of work, and uh, and we say to them uh, at that stage, right, you're going to have to use piled piled foundations for um for your extension, and. <laughs> At that stage, nothing changes from the architect's perspective because yeah. we're just talking about the talking about the foundations. So let's assume it all goes through planning. They get their planning consent, and then they've got to build the thing. And not only have they got to take into account uh, the tree and tree protection, all that kind of stuff, they've got to have their foundation design carried out. Now, what what? How would you approach that if somebody came to you at that stage? <coughs> would you run a mile? Um, because no, obviously no. in an ideal world that all the structural engineering calculations should have been done much much earlier on in the process so it's not a shock to them um now generally speaking you you would get planning permission for your house extension right and then you would do the building warrant calculation yeah. so it, it's quite often the case that you have planning and then you do the building warrant it's yeah. quite unusual for us to be doing both things at the same time mm. So generally speaking, people will decide what they want it to look like. Yeah. They'll get planning on it, um, and then they'll, they'll do the building one. By that point, we'll have the tree, tree preservation order or the, or the report that you're going to give us yeah. telling us that we need to make it piled. Right? If we didn't have that, we would have to go and find out what the original house foundations were, so that just in case it was piled. Yeah. Um, we can do that by contacting building control. They're, they're going to have a copy anyway. Um, or we can do site investigation on the, on the site, which mm. very few people actually want to do to be fair, <laughs> uh, because it's expensive. Um, or we can go to the British Geological Survey and get the records of the historic site investigation that was yeah. done. So, because you know the ground's going to be the same, um, but generally speaking, you're going to want to do some kind of SI on the site. Yeah. 
uh, just to confirm what the ground is. Uh, but once we've done that and we decide, yeah, okay, it's, it's going to have to be piled, then we just need to detail it as being piled. The, the piles themselves are generally not designed by the, the structural engineer who's right. designed the house. You would go to whoever the local piling company is mm. because you'll, you'll find you'll have two or three different options for what type of pile to put in. And it's not our job to pick one unless there's a benefit to using that particular yeah. pile. You know, it, it all comes down to cost. Well, so that, that, I mean, and, and that, that's basically what I'm getting at with this, I guess, is that um, people should really be doing their research early on because yeah. they think once they get that decision notice through in their hand, they've had a rough idea of build cost perhaps from the architects and then all of a sudden they found that their foundation design has trebled, quadrupled yeah. in, 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 in cost. Um, at that stage, I mean, are you the, are you the bad guy? Is that what you experience at yes, that stage? We're we are often the bad guy, mm. and we're often put under quite a lot of pressure to make it work as a raft foundation or traditional foundations. What if we don't do this? What's yeah. the worst case that'll happen? <coughs> what if I write you a letter saying that it's okay <laughs> if my house starts to sink? Um, and when that happens, you just have to walk away for the job, to yeah. be fair. Um, but there, there is always... The possibility it's not going to be that expensive. You might find mm. the rock heads quite shallow. Um, you might find that because of the size of the extension, you only need maybe half a dozen piles or something like that. Um, but it is all additional money. Yes. You know? But at the moment with COVID and what's happened with building materials and things mm. like that, the cost per square meter to go away and build anything has almost doubled in the last 18 months. Yeah. Right. So what we've saw. In, in our office certainly is a lot of people who got planning permission and the building wanted to design a big house extension come back and s scale it down because yeah. they just can't afford it anymore mm. uh, but when it comes to piles it, it kind of is what it is if you want to go away and design your house extension and pay for your house extension which might very well be 70 80 thousand pounds mm. are you really going to skimp on 10 grand worth of piling and risk it sinking yeah you know um and if you can find an engineer, and you will find an engineer, there will be somebody somewhere that will go away and give you a design that says it'll be okay with mm. strip foundations, right? Or you'll find a builder who's quite happy to go away and put strip foundations in and pretend it's piled. Yeah. Right, which is quite... A, Slightly terrifying, that. It, it's just the way it is. You know, mm. uh, as engineers, we're never paid to go and check the work because it's on site. People yeah. don't want to pay us to go and have a look at things when it's getting built. So we, we'll put stuff on drawings, but we don't have any ability to make sure that that's actually what's built because people don't, don't, don't even tell us it's happening. No, no, well, we, we, have, we have exactly the same. We'll, we'll get clients to have a decision notice come through and never tell us about it. Yeah. Um, they start, start work on site. Uh, three months into it, the tree officer does a random visit and says, well, hang on, um, Rover said that you were going to have tree protection fencing, ground protection boarding, yeah. a boricultural clerk of works. It? Where where is it? Where's the where's the records? Um, and then you you go to site and uh, there's almost nothing that you can do to make it good. All the damage has been been done at that stage. So yeah. oh, it's deeply it's deeply <laughs> frustrating. Chris, you've been absolutely brilliant with your time here. But there's there's one last thing I want to ask you about and that's this whole cryptocurrency thing so give 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 the listeners a bit of an overview this is not a subject that we normally normally cover on this podcast but give us a high level overview of, of what it is that you've you've done here because it sounds fantastic and what your the ultimate aim of it sounds brilliant um we my, my wife and i we 
we would give money to our local food bank. Yeah. Um, and what what I found was that if you're giving money to the food bank, obviously you get to know the people that are running it and things yeah. like that, and you turn up and and you you get quite involved in it and quite attached to it. But regardless of how much money we as a couple give, it makes no difference at all, mm. right? But you get to see the people who are going to the food bank, and you get to know some of them. And what you find is that these aren't generally people who are on benefits or they're unemployed or you know some of them are people who have two jobs right yeah but they actually don't have and this was before covid um that was not before before the electricity yes and everything went mental um they, these are people who've got two jobs but still can't afford food mm. which is just just can't be right you know no um but we also invest in cryptocurrency ourselves and we thought there's a lot of money in crypto maybe maybe we can do something that will allow us to fund food banks through mm. a cryptocurrency and I've, I, it was a, a silly idea that I thought well, let's let's see if maybe we can do it right so uh, I taught myself how to code um, I went on a little course online and yeah. it was like 200 hours of learning how to code oh and, my God. <laughs> um, and I wrote the, 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 the actual contract for the cryptocurrency and, and deployed it on on um, <laughs> on the um, Binance chain uh, and once that was there people started to buy it mm. right? and a portion of each transaction each buy and sell 5% of it goes towards uh, the, the charity wallet Yeah, um, and we, we managed quite quickly to raise about £50,000 in the charity it's incredible. wallet uh, which is an awful lot of money and it could do an awful lot of good yeah um, I've not looked at the moment to see how much money is in it now mm. um, but we've just uh, we've only just released an app where people can vote for the next food bank to get a donation of us. Oh, right, okay. Because just before Christmas, we, we donated money to a food bank in uh, Manchester mm. because none of the food banks close to where I live in Glasgow wanted the money. Um, they all thought I was at it. And I, yeah. I, I, I don't... It's, it was a bizarre situation. I was phoning people up going, look, £60,000 to give to your food bank. Yeah. It's in cryptocurrency. You're going to have to do a few things for me to give it to you and then you can transfer it to your bank account. Yeah. And they were all like, aye, right, son, aye, that sounds right, aye, the people hanging up and stuff. And you're like, this is unbelievable. I've got a lot of money to give away and nobody yeah. wants it. That's amazing. Um, but I found a food bank that was in Manchester that was going to shut down just before Christmas. So we donated money to them and it was really easy. It was just a case of us sending the cryptocurrency to an app on the phone. Mm. They converted it into actual money and then transfer it into the bank account. It's amazing, isn't it? When you're when you're close to something and familiar with it, it, it all sounds extremely, extremely straightforward, which I guess brings this conversation completely full circle really. You know, it's very, very familiar to you, the whole cryptocurrency thing. And I've listened to a few podcasts on it, whereas, you know, generally the vast majority of people out there, the general public, and I guess Possibly a lot of the people that are involved in those charitable organisations tend to be the older generation as well, um, and that does that does that does put a barrier in place. Yeah, so. I, th I think a lot of the problem that we were having was that most charities, most food banks, have trustees, and the trustees tend to be mm. pensioners that have a little yeah. bit more time on their hands to deal with these things, and they they, they would rather be given a wad of, a big wad of cash rather than something transferred into the bank account. And, I can understand that. Yes. Right, I totally get that. But if you're doing something as a cryptocurrency and you're donating on behalf of the people who hold that token, mm. it all needs to be electronic so that the people who hold the token can see that 
the money has went from our our wallet, uh, yeah, on the on the blockchain, uh, it's went from our wallet to the food bank who's receiving the money's yes. wallet, right? And it hasn't came from the food bank crypto wallet into my personal wallet, and then I've went to the bank, yeah, to convert <laughs> it into pound notes, yeah, right? Because that just looks as though I've stole the money, yes, you know, and that that would be the regardless of what I did in the back end to that to prove that I gave it to the food bank, yeah. there would always be somebody going, yeah, 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 but you took half of that money for yourself. Yeah, Cause yeah people you're just, at it. People yeah. are just wild that way these days. It is, it's right? sad, isn't it? Um, yeah. Especially if you're putting stuff up on Facebook, you know? Yeah. If you, if you put something up on Facebook, you're almost certainly just going to get a whole load of negative comments regardless of what good you've done. Mm. Um, so it, it had to be completely um, transparent for for people who are in the crypto community to go and see that we transferred it to this wallet that's got nothing to do with me, and that wallet address is on the food bank's yeah. website so that they could check to make sure that's actually them getting the cash. And then we got a few posts from the food bank saying, thanks very much, this has helped us do the following yeah. things and some pictures and stuff like that. Uh, and we got a tweet from Sally from Coronation Street as well, which oh, was very good. a big thing for me. Straight uh, over my head, unfortunately. Yeah, I've not, <laughs> I've not watched Coronation Street for a long time, but I, I know who Sally from Coronation Street yeah, is, yeah. so that was a big thing. Um, but yeah, it, it had to be completely transparent. But unfortunately, when you're giving money to a food bank or something like that, there is a, there seems to be a reluctance to believe that yeah. what you're saying is true, because you're not giving them five or ten pounds, you're giving yeah. them tens of thousands of pounds. The, the due diligence uh, around that's quite com yeah, quite complicated, I guess, from their perspective. But yeah. Chris, listen, you've been absolutely brilliant. It's been fantastic to go right from structural engineering through to food banks yeah. and cryptocurrency. I bet people weren't expecting that. So. Um, We'll put all your details in the uh, in the in the site notes, but I guess it. How can people reach you? What's the best way to reach you if they've got a question? If they have a question, the best place would be probably on Facebook. Just go to Ask the Structural Engineer. Just type it into the search field at the top. Fantastic! Um, you'll get a little baldy character uh, in a circle, and that's me. Um, and, and just ask whatever question you've got. Uh, I, I don't mind. I'm quite happy to go away and answer anybody's question because. If I can stop somebody doing something utterly, utterly silly to their house, yeah. like, you know, like once a week, I, I, yeah. I feel as though I've yeah. done something good. That's, in, that's, in that's our mission as well. Thanks a lot, Chris. It's been great. Um, safe travels home, and yeah. I will speak to you soon. Yeah, thanks very much. <laughs>